Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Monday, August the 15th, 2022, scouring the Economics pages of the leading financial dailies, the FT and the Wall Street Journal. One is given a dilemma in terms of figuring out whether or not the recession has arrived. Big question about that and whether or not there even will be a recession. I think some economists joked or half joked that um, when you lose your job, it's a depression. And when your neighbor loses his or her job, it's a minor recession. Certainly. The human impact of economics doesn't always play itself out, always isn't manifested on the economics pages. Economics is such a complicated business. The Journal has a piece today about restaurant meals being a relative bargain as, jo- as grocery prices soar. In other words, is that good or bad news? Grocery prices are soaring and it's cheaper to eat in restaurants. I'm not sure if that's good or bad. It might be good for the wealthy, bad for the poor, which always seems to be the case when it comes to economics. One newspaper that does mostly, perhaps better than some of the others, try to write about the human element, the human implications, the human complexity of economics, or at least the complexity of economics when it comes to the human condition, is the New York Times. Um, interesting piece recently, uh, actually today, if the job market is so good, why is gig work thriving? In other words, if there are so many jobs out there, why does everyone still want to drive an Uber car? My guest today really, I think, focuses on the human dimension of economics and its complexity in a moral and indeed perhaps even intellectual kind of ways. Peter Coy has been writing about economics for years, for many years. He's made a career out of it at Bloomberg and now at the New York Times. He is um, economics writer, New York Times opinion. Peter and I went backwards and forwards on this title. Uh, and I think uh, judging from that, he's a very meticulous fellow. Peter, uh, before we talk about the human dimension of economics, I, I assume you've made a career out of writing about economics. I never could. You're clearly a, a meticulous fellow. You, you, you focus on the details, don't you? Well, I try to, try to get the facts right. It's not always easy. Uh, I have a expression, which is there are like 10,000 ways to get a story wrong and only one way to get it right. <laughs> so you kind of have to be meticulous. Do you ever get the story wrong? Yeah, yeah. Don't want to brag. I don't want to talk about that, though, because it's too depressing. But, uh, you know, we're here to talk about happy things. Well, I'm not sure about happy things, Peter. As I said, you, you, you write a, um, uh, a newsletter for the Times two or three times a week. And, yeah, three uh, times. Three yeah. times. Congratulations on Thank that. Um, the one piece that caught my attention recently, and this is how we connected, and wasn't just about supply-side economics, but actually focused on uh, living paycheck to paycheck. Uh, and I like the title. What does it really mean to live paycheck to paycheck? Um, perhaps we might begin there in terms of the, the human dimension, because that title suggests that a lot of people are living on the street, which isn't entirely true when it comes to living paycheck to paycheck, is it? 
That's exactly right. And that was what I tried to get at in the article. And I, I started out quoting from a country music song, uh, you know, I'm not going to sing it to you unless you really want me to. About the lyrics, recession because, or depression, it all sounds the same to me. On TV, the experts try to tell us it's temporary for you and me. But in the meantime, there ain't no money for the little man in the land of the free. When you're living paycheck to paycheck, the hard times, they come free. I didn't sing it either, but it's a nice, uh, nice, a nice sounding or probably a miserable sounding lyric. When you're living paycheck to paycheck, the hard times, they come free. That's brilliant, Peter. I think mean, you need to make a record. You need, maybe you can have a, a second career. As second a career. So I found 17 songs that had exactly that title on Napster, which I'm the last person in America to still use, but 17 of them. And uh, as you alluded to, they tend to be about you know, pretty tough lives, backbreaking work, bad bosses, past due bills, people scraping by on the edge of failure. So then there's uh, an organization you might've heard of, Lending Club, and another organization, payments.com, that do a regular survey. And they found that close to two-thirds of the U.S. population are currently living, as they said, paycheck to paycheck, making it the main financial lifestyle in the United States. So, as you said, yeah. that's really add up. million adults are living right. paycheck to paycheck, which is an astonishing number. It is. So, either... You know, a lot of people, a lot more people are living paycheck to paycheck than it appears just walking around or the number or the I won't say that the, the survey's wrong. I think the survey's absolutely correct. But it depends what you mean when you say paycheck to paycheck. Different people have different ideas in mind of what that expression means. And and I think the country singers are closer to the truth when they describe it as really just scrambling just to survive. Peter, why aren't economists the most popular people in the world? Why do people often blame economists for either misleading us or telling us excessively good or bad news? What's the problem in your mind with the PR of economists? Because we should trust guys like you more than we actually do. Okay, so first of all, I'm not an economist and I have never... Well, you're an economist. You're an economics writer. What's the difference? Right. Well, that is a big difference, though, because uh, I write about the findings of economists i don't attempt to you know do the job myself uh and that is a pretty big important difference but but to answer your question i think it's because um economists can be a little bloodless lot uh maybe uh, uh, focusing just a little too much on the numbers and maybe not quite enough on the pain that people feel and that's a generalization because there are a lot of economists who do have hearts and, and, and do go out to try to talk to real people living real lives. Um, so the rap is a little uh, unfair. Uh, but, you know, economists tend to look at supply and demand. And so in a case like this, we're talking about paycheck to paycheck. They'll say, hey, um, you're not really living paycheck to paycheck. You're choosing this lifestyle. And some people who feel rather in straightened circumstances don't want to be told that. 
Peter, stand back a little bit. It, may, it might be hard for you to stand back because you're 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 surrounded in the detail and you focus on the detail. As I said at the beginning, you're very meticulous. But what is your sense of the the state of the American economy uh, at lunchtime Pacific time on August the fifteenth, twenty twenty two? I mean, it's unusually confusing, as you uh, uh, said in the beginning in that we have strong job market. I mean, really strong. I've had another half million jobs created last month, uh, accompanied by some evidence of weakness here and there. I mean, since we're being topical, the uh, Empire State Survey came in today exceptionally low, like uh, negative 31 was supposed to be positive five. It doesn't, the details don't matter. But the point is, you get numbers like that, and then you get the fact that we had a you know, de- decline in GDP, first and second quarters. There are, there are signs pointing to uh, recession or near recession, and then other signs pointing to a, quite a robust economy. So a lot of confusion out there. Uh, I guess uh, I, I do sense in the, that the economy is turning over, that these um, high interest rates are going to have a uh, depressing effect on growth and, for example, raising mortgage rates, making it harder to buy a house, which reduces construction and has all those follow-on effects. So, yeah, it's it's hard to be super optimistic about economic conditions right now. As I suggested at the beginning, I mean, there are some or, ma- or many economic stories which have both good and bad, optimistic, pessimistic piece, the thing on the expense of of eating out, for example, um, or the number of uh, jobs and gig work. Do you think the general climate, the cultural climate in America is so pessimistic that even the best economic news is greeted pessimistically? There's always a political take on the economy, especially as we near the midterm elections. Uh, Republicans are going to have a negative view because they don't want the Democrats to win and Democrats are going to have a positive because they want do want the Democrats to win. So uh, that enters into it. Um, I, I find that when I write my articles now, no matter how much I try to keep politics out of it, everything gets perceived through a political lens. Uh, for example, I wrote uh, last week, on, on Friday about the, uh, the, the latest news on, uh, on, on um, inflation. And you may have seen that discussion. Yeah, I mean, uh, inflation, was this inflation is bad, but unemployment is far worse, or was that? Well, that's, that's, a, that's from July, but the, the one I wrote that came out on Friday said, look, uh, the, the prices did not change from June to j- July. So... By that definition, there was zero inflation, and that's what Joe Biden played up. On the other hand, prices did change from July 2021 to July 2022 by 8.5%. So if you're a Republican, you want to focus on the 8.5%. If you're a Democrat, you want to focus on the zero. And whichever party you're in, you'll claim that the other party is absolutely wrong, misinterpreting the numbers, or outright lying. And it's just unfortunate that we've gotten to be like that. Well, wasn't that always the case, Peter? I mean, economics news can always be interpreted in so many different ways. 
And we're always playing, I mean, the nature of economics is playing off inflation, for example, versus unemployment. Uh, And so you've got to choose your poison. No, I, I I don't disagree with that at all. I just feel like things are worse now. I've been doing this, as you said, for quite a few years, decades, and I haven't gotten this like wall of noise coming back at me uh, the way I am now with everybody just, as I said, trying to see whether, how to, how to make the story fit their preconceptions, political preconceptions. Wasn't the Republican Party historically, at least before Trump, wasn't it the party of economic good sense, whereas the Democratic Party was the party of morality, of decency? Uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, that's how the two parties at least presented themselves to the world. Do you think that's even changed? It seems to me as if in, in an odd kind of way, they're reversing their hats and that the, the Republican Party is increasingly focusing on morality whereas the, the Democrats seem increasingly focused on, on economics. You wrote an interesting piece uh, the beginning of the month, August 1, supply-side economics isn't just for Republicans anymore. Right. And this really speaks of a, a structural shift politically in the way in which Democrats are beginning to think like economists, maybe not like Milton Friedman, but certainly more like traditional economists, and the Republicans seem to be retreating from that area. Yeah, uh, I agree with parts of what you said. Uh, the the supply side economics used to be strictly a Republican talking point, and it was very much focused on the idea that if you cut taxes and reduce regulation, you'll encourage uh, more production, more supply. And so if you have more supply, then that'll bring down prices and uh, that'll be good for consumers. That was the concept. Now, Democrats are saying, well, there are other things you can do to increase supply uh, besides just cutting taxes. You can, uh, for example, educate people better so that you have a more educated workforce that increases the supply of labor. Um, you can get, you can stop companies from uh, using their monopoly power to restrict supply. That's also good for supply and good for consumers. So it's called, or some people call it supply-side economics, but it's, it's not the uh, Republican version. We, we did a show on, if you're familiar with the economic historian, Gary Gerstel, written a really interesting piece. I've often referred to it, The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order. Yeah. It, if we are, as Gerstel seems to suggest, living at the end of the neoliberal order, and as both political sides and parties are, trying to figure out what comes next politically. Um, You wrote, for example, about uh, Saul uh, um, uh, Omarova and their interest in uh, an institutional blueprint associated with the Bergeron Institute, which is a progressive economic institute, uh, for figuring out... It's not neoliberalism, but it's certainly the economics of the left for the market in the 21st century. That's what you're trying to make sense of, isn't it? Yeah, so neoliberalism uh, is kind of all about getting the government out of the way and uh, trying to let the market work. 
And this National Investment Authority is saying there are limits to the free market and government needs to come in and help it along. You know, work, not oppose the markets, but help fill in where the markets fail. So it's, it's definitely more of a left idea. And the good thing about my newsletter, well, I think it's a good thing, maybe you'll disagree, is that I, I give voice to people from the left, right, and center to try to pose, I think you do this too on your show, try to, you know, don't, don't, don't try to make up people's minds for them, give them some cool ideas for them to munch on at home. Well, I hope uh, I hope I'm doing that in terms of the munching. It's lunchtime here, Peter, so we certainly all need to do a bit of munching. Uh, is Omarova one of the more interesting economic thinkers around? I mean, progressives are not falling into the trap of just repeating Clinton and Blair and trying to emulate the free market. They're trying to rethink this whole thing, aren't they? Yeah, and that was, you know, I, I was... I was going to bring up Clinton, actually, when you were talking before about, you know, the, the perception of Republicans versus Democrats. The last time we had a budget surplus in the United States was under Bill Clinton, the Democrat. Uh, and the Democrats began to realize they were being played for fools because they were being called the party of the big spenders uh, by the Republicans, even as they were actually the opposite. They were the ones who were reducing deficits and they began to say why are we knocking ourselves out to balance the budget when we don't get politically rewarded for it and uh, somehow there's retain there's this remaining vestigial view that it's republicans who are the res fiscally responsible ones so now we have neither party really devoted to uh budget balancing what do you make uh peter of the fetish is particularly on this coast in California and Silicon Valley with innovation. We had a, a former uh, Clinton admin person, a Clinton administration official, Howard Walk, on the show recently. I'm sure you're familiar with some of his work. Um, he has a new book out on uh, why America's greatest strength is its entrepreneurial edge uh, and how that can even address the crises of the environment, inequality, and healthcare. Would yeah. it be fair to say, Peter, that most of the more ambitious thinking about market fixes to the environment, to healthcare, and indeed inequality, are coming from progressives like Walt? I'm happy to think that's fair. I, I think Republicans have one prescription that they've stuck with, which is get the government out of the way. The Democrats are uh, kind of being more creative. You don't necessarily agree with them, but there's more kind of energy, uh, more, it's a more of a fertile party in terms of what, what can we do differently? Uh, but there's a lot of line crossing. There's a, there's a bunch of scholars who used to disagree with each other or be perceived as coming from different points of view who are meeting in the middle with ideas like the National Investment Authority by Omarova, um, you know, fairly conservative organizations, you know, who say maybe there is some kind of role for a, a government in steering the economy. 
is there a way to do that without introducing inefficiency and corruption? That's that's the conversation that's going on now. And, you know, I'm glad you, you, you're doing this in San Francisco because, wow, Silicon Valley, uh, after all these decades, remains the hotbed of, of, of innovation in the United States. And a lot of the ideas are coming out of uh, right in your, your home market there. Do you see conservatives from Silicon Valley, people like Peter Thiel, he's not here anymore, but that's where he made his name. Uh, is, is there any interesting thinking coming on innovation from conservatives like Thiel? I mean, Thiel's politics are, of course, for, for probably for many of our audience, rather disturbing, but he's a smart guy and he understands economics. Well, I, I think there's a, there's a brand of Silicon Valley thinker which says it's sort of the great man theory all over again which is just let the, the geniuses have their way and all will be well. You know, Peter Thiel and uh, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos will save the world. And uh, that's definitely not my point of view. So that's, that's yet, a, yet another strand of thinking. What about the role of government, Peter? We've done many shows on the inefficiencies in government when it comes to economics, We've done one with, I'm sure you're familiar with the work of Christopher Leonard, sure. uh, has written the best book, I think, critical of quantitative easing and the policy of the Federal Reserve over the last 12 years. How much responsibility do you think the government has, particularly the Federal Reserve, I guess it's not the government, the state has for today's, if not a crisis, certainly the problems of inflation and inequality, which unusually seem to be going together. So I've actually talked to Chris Leonard about this, and I think he's got a provocative take, but I think he's overly critical of the Federal Reserve. Uh, Fed did not get things right, but it's worth remembering that in the spring of 2020, we were uh, having, we had the worst single month in history for uh, the economy when we lost from like 20 million jobs. It's just unprecedented. And it was not, it, we, we appeared that we could be heading for a depression, uh, COVID induced depression. And so the Fed pulled out all the stops and, and arrested that. And so did not just the Fed, but the, the fiscal side, Congress and the president with a generous, checks uh turned out that it was too much we know that now they, they overstimulated the economy but i'll tell you what if if i had to choose between a depression and the current bout of inflation i raised my hand for the current bout of inflation it was a mistake but if you're going to err I'd rather err on the side of lots of people having jobs and prices being too high than prices being nice and low and massive unemployment. Yeah, I have to get you and uh, Chris on the show together. It'd be an interesting and I think very civil conversation, an yeah. important conversation. Yeah. Peter, last week I had uh, uh, Richard uh, Vague on the show. He has a case for a debt jubilee. Uh, he runs the economics in, uh, in Pennsylvania. Last year I had Stephanie Kelton on the show, the deficit myth on modern monetary theory. What do you make of these sort of quirky theories of economics, stuff like modern monetary theory, debt relief, so we can all 
everyone gets debt relief. Are there are there big ideas in the future of economics that aren't just Ponzi schemes of one kind or another? Is there any reality to some of these seemingly absurd, radical ideas that are actually also extremely seductive? I mean, it, everyone would love the idea of a, a debt jubilee, uh, but whether it could work. And the same with uh, uh, Kelton's arguments on the deficit myth, the idea that the government can just kind of spend on, in an unlimited way is also very compelling. Yeah, no, obviously you have to treat them separately because they're different ideas. But uh, so maybe just one at a time on the, the debt jubilee. That is a, a very good thing for the short term uh, in terms of the relief it provides to people who are overly indebted. But it's a bad thing for the long term in that if you're a lender and you're afraid that there's going to be another jubilee declared, you're not going to want to make another loan because uh, you're not going to get paid back. So... Uh, as for modern monetary theory, I've spent a lot of time thinking about that and talking to people about it. In fact, my newsletter today uh, quotes Warren Mosler, who's maybe the father of modern monetary theory, and uh, on, on a particular piece of the theory, not, not the, uh, the whole shebang. But uh, yeah, as you said, it's a seductive idea. Um, the problem is that the modern monetary theorists probably, uh, whether it's in the theory or just in the practice, have uh, overemphasized the uh, ability of the economy to grow and uh, to put people to work. And we've seen the consequences of guessing the economy's capacity wrong. We have enormous number of unfilled job openings, you know, over 10 million, 11 million or something, way more than the number of people are unemployed. So uh, modern monetary theory would say, don't worry, you know, let the economy grow quickly and somehow workers will emerge from the woodwork to fill all those jobs. Well, as we know now, that has not happened. Peter, what worries you most about the economy today? What if what are the indicators that suggest significant problems in the future? What keeps you awake? Is it unemployment? Is it inflation? Is it education? Education is a, a long-term concern. Um, in the short term, the, uh, I worry that the more months we go by with an extremely tight job market, and, and uh, the more the Fed is going to stick to a, a quite a restrictive monetary policy, and we're going to have a, a downturn. I think eventually the unemployment rate would jump. It's a funny thing we're headed for, though, because you can imagine the scenario where the traditionally kind of a high unemployment rate is almost synonymous with a recession. You could have a a recession in which the unemployment rate is not particularly high, but the economy is also not very healthy. It's producing way less than it's capable of producing. That's just not a good situation to be in. And perhaps it suggests that even the language we use is redundant. We've done so many shows, and you've written a lot about this, about the environmental crisis, the two, cri the two key crises in America, the environmental crisis and the crisis of the medical system can 
can the American economy be fixed unless these two issues are addressed directly? You know, you could superficially fix the economy without addressing either one. You can get good GDP growth without doing anything about climate change. And I would say probably you can also get good GDP growth without fixing healthcare. Uh, so if all you care about is economic growth, then the answer to your question is yes. But I think you and I, and probably 99% of your listeners, uh, viewers care more, care about more than that. So you don't, you don't just, you're not trying to fix the economy. I mean, uh, climate and healthcare because of the economy, you're doing it because those are good things to fix, right? For their own sake. Maybe, Peter, we should just open the borders. You had an interesting piece recently. Why so many children of immigrants rise to the top? We've done lots of shows about this. Erica Sanchez, a best-selling writer, suggests that real 21st century Americans are, by definition, risk-taking, rebellious immigrants. Is, is the key really, ultimately, just letting more people in, especially the kind of risk-taking types that want to come to this country in the first place? You know, I think that would be a good thing. Uh, the point of that article, thank you, by the way, very much for highlighting these pieces. Um, it's, it's great to see that uh, you, you gave a read to some of my stuff, and I hope some of the people on this podcast will check out the newsletter. But, but on that well, one, I was... I mean, uh, they just have to sign up, Peter, I assume, at New York Times. Well, you actually need a subscription to the Times but a lot of people have those, actually, including a lot That's of That's a clever pay. economic trick. You get, you, you get the newsletter if you pay. If you, if you have a subscription to the Times anyway, then just sign up and it's free. But uh, to get, getting back to this immigration piece. Well, that, that, that redefines what free means. <laughs> <laughs> the, it's the, free if you pay, in other words. Well, you know what? This is why people hate economists, because the economists would say the marginal cost is zero. Whatever that means, yeah. The, the extra additional cost, once you have this. Having, having already paid, yeah, the marginal cost is zero. Anyway, right. go on, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Okay. So Ron Abramitsky at Stanford and Leah Bustan at Princeton are the ones who did this work that I was writing about. They discovered that uh, immigrants are highly upwardly mobile, more than native-born Americans, and actually... Uh, it's not just because they've got more grit or something. One key reason is that when they come to these shores, they make a beeline for places where they can get a job. Uh, they, they know where the jobs are and where the jobs aren't. So they're less, whereas native born Americans kind of for a hundred different reasons will tend to stick, tend to keep living where they were born and raised. Um, they have family close by, they, they, they love their state, their city, their, their, their county. And maybe the, maybe the jobs are gone, but they, they stay. So the people who go to where the jobs are are more upwardly mobile than the people who don't. Simple as that. Peter, uh, most of my guests on the show are actually authors of books. You write an enormous amount, you've written um... You've written for 32 years for Business Week and Bloomberg, uh, uh, and Bloomberg, and now yeah. you're a New York Times uh, a writer. Um, 
never. And books, do you think um, yesterday's game, better off writing newsletters that people read immediately that don't go out of date after about 20 minutes? Well, there's a lot of reasons people choose to write a book. Like Chris Leonard, um, who I've dealt with recently. Um, has he has a, a big thesis, so, yeah. Yeah. It's, people have a big thesis that they want to elaborate on that they feel like they're tired of cutting down to bite-sized pieces. Writing a book is a huge amount of work and I have resolutely avoided doing one of them. <laughs> I, I, I like the quick hits, uh, but that's just me. Everybody's different. Uh, so what I admire books, um, What are your favorite economic books? I know you, you said that you found the, the Leonard book on QE uh, the Lords of Easy Money, interesting. What else have you been reading? What other books? Yeah, I just finished uh, reading Wild Problems by Russ Roberts, who has a show a little bit like yours. Uh, he interviews mostly economists. Uh, so Wild Problems are ones that uh, sort of like the unknown unknowns, like you don't even know what you don't know. And, the Rumsfeldian economics. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So that's a that's a good one. I'm also I just interviewed Ben Bernanke this morning. Oh, and, yeah, I'm trying to get uh, him on the show. He's hard to get. He's hard to get, but uh, just tell him you want to talk about his book, and you'll have a better shot. Uh, so his book is called Twenty First Century Monetary Policy. It's a bit of a tome. I mean, you have to really care about monetary policy to read the book, but if you do, it's great. It's got everything you'd want to know about how monetary policy has been made since he was chair and before going back to Volcker and Greenspan and even earlier. Uh, another book I would recommend that I wrote about recently is uh, by Catherine Judge. She's a professor at Columbia Law School. It's called Direct, The Power of the Middlemen, uh, Middleman Economy and the Power of yeah, you even wrote a piece on it. Are middlemen hey. really profit-making parasites? Which is um, really interesting thesis, actually. Yeah, I thought so. So um, I think again, I didn't counter to the ideologues in Silicon Valley or in the business continually of disintermediation, thinking that's a good thing. Well, she she's an advocate of disintermediation, but. She's, she wouldn't necessarily do it the Silicon Valley way, which is just, you know, becoming a new intermediary to replace the old one, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I'd recommend that one, too.